pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast. Well, today is show number 387, or course number 0387, if you are taking this course for continuing education credit. And so uh, let's just jump right into what we're talking about today. I've been doing a series called Prelinguistic Skills that Toddlers Master Before Words Emerge. And again, let's not lose our focus here. It doesn't matter what age a child is, whether he's 12 months old and a typically developing child and learning how to talk with what we consider to be on time or whether he's a little later at 24 months or 36 months or 48 months, it doesn't matter. What really, really matters is that you understand that there are skills that come before a toddler learns how to use words. And again, it doesn't really matter when that is, we just want it to happen. And as I say to parents all the time, you know, I, I specialize in toddlers and early preschoolers. So about to, until a kid is about five, and then when he goes to kindergarten, he's getting a little too old for me uh, because I do specialize in that younger age range. But again, sometimes parents will say to me, Laura, I started listening to your show when, you're, when my child was two and we were first discovering he's a late talker, and now he's six and he's still not doing as well. Do these strategies still work? Absolutely, <laughs> because we take a developmental approach to teaching children to understand and use words. And so again, even if you're watching this, if you have a seven-year-old or an older child who's not yet talking, don't give up. Don't give up on spoken language. And you can certainly use some other things. We'll talk about that in some upcoming shows. AAC is wonderful. It's a wonderful way to get communication going, but don't give up on talking. So again, just wanted to get that in there. All right. So today we are looking at the second skill in our series, and there are actually 11 prelinguistic skills that all children master before they begin to talk. And if you're just joining me, if you've just discovered this show on YouTube or on Blog Talk Radio or in iTunes, however you listen to it, you know, you're, you're kind of coming in halfway or, or at least, you know, 15, 20% of the way. So let me just give you a quick rundown of what all 11 skills are. First of all, kids have to learn how to react to events in the environment. Secondly, they have to learn how to respond to people, which is what we're talking about today. Then they begin turn-taking, which is skill number three. Number four is they develop a longer attention span. Number five is that they really, really master joint attention, so they learn how to shift and share their attention. Number six is that they have uh, play skills and play with a variety of toys appropriately and functionally. Skill number seven is they understand early words and follow simple directions. So that's referring to what speech language pathologists call receptive language or what they understand. Number eight is vocalizes purposefully. All kids have to be noisy before they can talk, and so that's skill number eight. Skill number nine is that a child learns how to imitate, and that doesn't start with words. It starts way back at actions and then gestures and then sounds and then moves to words. Skill number 10 is that they use early gestures to begin to communicate because gestures always precede uh, spoken words and then skill number 11 children learn how to initiate interaction with others so those are the 11 skills that we're talking about in this 
podcast series. So this is show number 387 and show number 385, we ran through that entire list of skills so that you become familiar with that and you learn what those are. And this is so important if you're a therapist. If you're just trying to get in there and teach a kid how to talk without considering all the components, oh, you are really, really missing out because you're probably not as successful as you want to be because that rarely, rarely works. And if you are a parent watching this and you expect your speech therapist to do that, you think she's going to come right in and just instantaneously start working on words, that doesn't happen either. We should really be looking at these foundational skills first. So that's why we're doing this series. So go back and listen to show number 385 so that you can hear that entire background. And then last week for show number 386, we did skill number one, which is reacts to events in the environment. And we talked about how getting a child to learn to use his little senses to refer things he can see and things he can hear and things he can feel and even things he can taste. And so if you have a child with significant developmental delays or significant physical or motoric limitations or even a sensory impairment like vision or hearing impairment, go back and listen to that show or watch that show because you'll get some good ideas and if you're a therapist and you're working with a child like that or you, or even if you think, oh, my skills aren't as great in that area, go back and watch that show too because that'll really get you started. All right, so today here we are. We're going to talk about skill number two, which is response to people. So what does this mean? This means that a child demonstrates a consistent social response. She enjoys being around other people and you can tell that she likes to be around other people she responds she and again we're not talking about interaction or initiation here her starting the interaction with another person we're talking about what she does when a person tries to engage her when a person tries to talk to her now I'll just say in my experience as a pediatric speech-language pathologist this one area if you focus on this you can make the quickest amount of progress and just sometimes totally turn a kid around and if you don't believe me try it <laughs> because even with kids who again aren't as social but you don't think they are uh, that this is a big problem you might just consider this to be a little temperament or a personality issue you might think they're just shy or you might think they're just a loner or you might think that they just uh, just are again only like being around their family members but don't really enjoy being around other people this, or, or have limited experience sometimes when we go in as early interventionists and children haven't really seen a lot of people other than mom or dad or their grandparents or maybe the neighbor and so they have very little experience with other people and so they're naturally a little more reserved and so this one strategy helping children learn how to consistently respond to people is just a game changer for so so many children so what happens when toddlers don't respond to others they tend to self-isolate which means they, want, they seem like they want to spend a lot of time alone. But guys, that is not how we are created. We are created for interaction. We are created to respond when other people talk to us. And so again, we need to help children uh, uh, really, really master this ability to engage with other people. So when kids look like they're self-isolating or when they, they don't demonstrate a consistent response to other people, they tend to be in their own little worlds and they don't really include other people. And so it is critical for these children for when we don't think, oh, this is just a little personality thing or a temperament thing, when we really know, oh my goodness, this is a problem. She does not look when her name's called. She does not uh, 
try to find her mom during the day or or she she wants to just be alone for long periods of time that is a big big red flag and i'll just tell you i'll go ahead and say it that's a real big red flag for autism and so if you're a therapist you certainly know that or you should know that <laughs> but if you're a parent again you may have mischaracterized some of these things and you may blame it on something environmental that you've done you may say oh we moved and during the move I over relied on an iPad or the TV to kind of occupy him and so I just let him do his own thing for so long that that's what he likes to do now and that's just kind of a natural thing and that's just that's just a bad habit that I've got a break and for some children that may be true but I'll just tell you what typically developing toddlers are demanding <laughs> they usually don't want to be left alone for long periods of time they are usually clamoring for your attention so that if you're in the shower they want to be in the bathroom too if you're cooking dinner they are right there they are constantly if they've learned how to say your name you're going to hear mama about 150 million times a day I mean they want your attention so anytime I hear a parent say they're so independent or he's just so good he was just such a good baby he barely made a peep he barely cried I hardly ever knew he was with me it just gives me knots in my stomach because that is so far off from what we see in typically developing toddlers so if you're a parent you're realizing this for the first time take a deep breath <laughs> And just know this is something you're going to have to work on. Now, I will say also, this is a big red flag for autism. Autism is uh, characterized as mainly a social communication issue, meaning that people, children, from the time they are toddlers, babies and toddlers on, they interact differently with people. And so this is the core skill that's missing or weaker in children with autism and let me just say too sometimes parents will come to me and they'll say he's got a lot of red flags for autism but he still makes eye contact with me or he's got a lot of red flags for autism but he's still pretty good with me and so let me just say too don't really include or count a child's interactions with his own parents his primary caregivers because that's not really what we're looking at we're looking at how a child in general responds to lots of different people a variety of people so that's what we want to be talking about today and and the good news is we can address this we're, there are lots of things that we could do to make this better so let's just run through again a little checklist some questions that will help you decide if a toddler responds to others and again you'll really have a good idea after we get through this list if this is something that you need to target with a child so does your child smile and enjoy himself when someone plays with him so if you try to get him in a little game like peekaboo or patty cake or tickling or chase or something like that how does he respond and not only to you if you're the parent but if you're a therapist or you are a grandparent or how does he do this with the neighbor how does he respond when someone in the grocery store tries to do a little game with him it does he naturally uh, just avoid that does he look away does he can, even if he's shy will he warm up to other people so that's a big big uh, indicator that you want to look at secondly will he look for you when he hears you coming so does he anticipate that you're going to come in the room or is again he's so checked out uh interaction wise is he so hyper focused on a toy or the ipad 
or whatever you have him doing or he wants to do? Is he just so laser focused on that that he doesn't even look up when somebody else tries to come in the room and talk to him? So that's another big red flag when kids aren't responding to other people. Does she notice when you're not there and does she fuss for to try to find you? So again, if she's been by herself for a while, you should hear her wanting your attention. That's completely typical. The next one, does he seem to ignore language? So if you are looking at a child and again, they just tune out, they don't respond when you call their names or it's very inconsistent. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. If you tell him to do something, you have to tell him 150 times or 10 times or <laughs> more than a few times. And sometimes he doesn't even do it then. You have to really help him and show him how to do things for him to participate in daily routines with you unless it's something that he really, really likes. So again, there's a big inconsistency there. If you're just trying to talk to him, he, he does seem to not hear you sometimes or, or sometimes parents will say, you know, he's choosing, he has selective hearing. It's not really that, it's not really that. And so again, we have to really get in there and dig in and make sure that we're understanding that this is a lack of his ability to respond. This is not something that he can naturally control. And again, it might look that way to a parent because you say, well, if I'm going to throw him up in the air, you know, 10 times and, or we're in the swimming pool or the bathtub, he is crazy about me. He just loves me. And then I think, well, think about the other 23 hours in the day. <laughs> think about the other times, of course, that he's not asleep, but that you're not doing something that he really, really loves. Is he still connected to you? Does he still want to be with you? Is he still responding? All right. So d we've already talked about this. Does a toddler consistently respond to his or her name? Again, a big red flag for autism that we see in toddlers. And when children b really begin to respond to their names when they are less than a year old. So if you are watching this podcast and you are listening and you have a child who is 18 months or 24 months or 29 months and he's not responding to his name, that is a big, big red flag. And we want to get on that immediately because that really, really tells us that he's not responding typically. He's not responding appropriately. And let me just say, I, my plan today after I uh, video and uh, record this audio podcast is to do a therapy tip of the week that I call the name game, that it's helping a child respond when he or she hears her name. So be sure to check that out and be sure to uh, watch for that. All right, so does a child seem to prefer objects or things like TV or again the iPad or apps on your phone to interacting with people? That's another big red flag. Is he unresponsive when someone talks to him? And again, it could be that you think, oh, we're just having difficulty getting his attention. Or his daycare teacher says that she just cannot get him to smile at her or really play with her like the other kids do. Or listen when he's supposed to come over and, you know, it's time to eat or something or it's time to go out on the playground. She can't really get his attention until he sees what the other children are doing. So that's another big red flag that a child has difficulty responding. And secondly, does she interact fine with you as a parent but seems to avoid or dislike or blow off other people? That's a big red flag too, that a child is having difficulty with engagement. So again, sometimes parents and even sometimes therapists will fall into this. It's really characterizing something that's this developmental red flag with a personality or a temperament trait. Don't do that. <laughs> really make yourself look at this as objectively as possible. And you know, love 
so blinds us to imperfections. And, and that's fantastic. I mean, we could hardly be married or parent children <laughs> without having an overwhelming sense of love in our hearts for them and an overwhelming desire to see the best in them and to, to nurture them and really, really do everything we can and to overlook their flaws and faults. And that is fantastic. And we certainly need to be doing that. But <laughs> when it comes to looking at toddlers who are not talking yet, we really have to rule out other bigger developmental um, issues like autism. And again, this is the one that's so closely, closely related. This skill is so closely, closely related to the core deficit of autism, which is difficulty with social interaction. So let's be sure that we're being as objective as possible. And, and sometimes we as therapists, we put on our rose-colored glasses so much that we don't really see these things in the first few sessions or a kid is good with mom, and then he's good with you. Why is he good with you? Because you're supposed to be good with kids. You're supposed to be able to get them to interact with you. And so sometimes that'll blind us a little bit too. And so we have to really, 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 again, be as objective as possible so that we don't miss anything and so that we can get the right strategies in place and really, really strengthen this skill. And I told you at the beginning, if you will work on this with some children first, not any other goal, not receptive language, following directions, not expressive language or talking. If you will work on this, if you will just prioritize social interaction above every other goal that you may be thinking about working on, this is a total game changer. And when I started doing this with kids, when I first got into to the approach was initially called floor time. And now all of us have adapted this relationship-based approach, hopefully. <laughs> But when this was new information back in the late 90s, and I just devoured Dr. Greenspan's book, you know, Working with Toddlers with Special Needs, or I'm probably the child with special needs. I'm probably not saying that correctly right now, and that's okay. But that when that was new, groundbreaking information, I just totally changed how I treated children. And I started looking at this piece as the number one skill that I was going to work on almost with everybody. It didn't really matter to me if I thought they had autism or red flags for autism. I just decided I'm going to get in there and I'm going to establish the best relationship with this child that I can before I work on anything else. So if he, and we'll talk about these specific strategies in a minute. We prioritize what they like and then we do that and we try to, again, build that relationship first. This was, again, groundbreaking back in the 90s, and I just embraced it wholeheartedly and just thought, you know, what I'm doing isn't always as effective as I need to be. And so, and, and working with toddlers was my goal and my dream, but I took a little detour and worked with geriatrics first because we needed to get some financial things in line. And then, uh, you know, did that in addition to working with toddlers, kind of had a position where I could do both. But then I decided that I just wanted to work with toddlers and I wanted to really get good at it. And so this is what I really, really embrace from the beginning is making sure that we address this social interaction piece first. No matter what I think is wrong with the kid, whether he's apraxic or whether he's, uh, you know, a mixed receptive expressive language disorder, whatever it is, it didn't matter to me. I was going to work on that social piece first. And guys, it has really, really paid off. And so think about that if you're a therapist. If you are not routinely thinking I'm going to get this relationship with this child going first and sometimes we don't do that as much as as when we're doing direct one-on-one -on -one therapy like in my 
uh, current position, our mission-based clinic here in Central Kentucky, I can totally do tons of direct one-on-one -on -one treatment with children because that's what they're here for. But with state early intervention programs, sometimes we have drifted so far with the consultative model that we don't really do a lot of establishing relationships with children because we're not doing a, a lot of direct one-on-one -on -one treatment. And I get that. I get that because we should be teaching parents how to do these strategies. And we, it should not just be one hour a week of speech therapy or one hour a week of communication intervention. That doesn't work either. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We've got to be able to really, really, again, directly work with children so that we see that what strategies work. And so that we see, again, not just based on parental report, but what our clinical eyes tell us and our clinical ears tell us, what our instincts and our impressions tell us. When we work directly with a child, we get information that we may not always get if we're just looking at it consultatively. And again, I'm not bashing that model. I'm not saying that we don't do parent education. You know, are you kidding me? I have a whole career <laughs> built on teaching parents how to do this with a website and videos and DVDs and books written specifically for that. So at the same time, you've got to marry it if you're a therapist. You've got to be sure that you're doing that too. So that's the foundation here. We're establishing relationships and fun, loving connections with toddlers before we do anything else. Before a kid can learn anything from you, he has got to like you and he has got to want to be with you. And so that's what we need to get going first. All right, so we've done our, our little homework there. We've decided whether or not a child really has a problem responding to people. Let's move on and talk about, again, what it looks like when a kid does respond to other people. Because if you are a parent, and again, you're saying, well, I'm not so sure about that, really, really look at these indicators. And if you're a therapist, you need to use questions like both of these, kind of the negatively um, slanted questions that I did in the, the a few minutes ago, but we also need to ask a parent about these kinds of things. So when, when a kid is responding to people, he does smile at lots of different people when they talk to him. He does react differently to different people. So she may get more excited like when dad comes home or when she sees mom than she will a neighbor or somebody she hasn't seen before. And again, this shows us that there's a more consistent response to people. A child will look around for other people when he hears him speak. So if a child is playing and he hears somebody come in the room or he hears somebody in the next room or mom's even there and she hasn't talked to him for a while, she's doing laundry or something else or she gets off the phone or that kind of thing, and then she starts talking to him, he's right there. He is zoned in on her. He wants to hear what she has to say. So that's a big indicator too. Kids, and we talked about this, children who are typically developing or when social skills are are developing as they would as we would like for them to they do prefer to be around other people they don't want to be left by themselves for long periods of time so they seek out interaction with other people and so they may cry or fuss when they're left alone and again that is completely normal uh, we also want toddlers to respond to their names we've already talked a lot about that and um, they happily participate in play with a variety of people. So it's not just all about mom or mom and one sibling, and then there's a second tier of people, and then there are people that they don't even know. They, they get along with other people. They like to be with other people. They warm up to other people. 
And so again, that's, um, that, those are the things we look for. When the skill's not developing, let's just run through these again. Not much sustained eye contact. An adult may question his or her ability, ability to hear. They tend to ignore or avoid other people. A toddler seems to prefer objects over people. Their mood and their affect can seem flat or unresponsive. So sometimes the parent will say, she's very serious or he's very determined. And so they are assigning, again, these words that don't quite mean what they, what it really, really is, which is a difficulty, which is difficulty engaging and difficulty interact, interacting. And I like that expression that I said a minute ago, a toddler regularly blows off other people. So you may work and work and work and work and work to get his attention. And again, you have to give that much effort or you just don't get anything back. So that's a big, big, big red flag. And so, and then again, uh, it might be that other adults or children don't feel like this child likes them very much because they can't get that normal human back and forth pleasantness or warmth going with that kind of interaction. So look for those things. So what's going on when children don't consistently respond to people? Well, they may not hear or see clearly. And we talked about with skill number one and back in the introduction show in uh, show number 385, we talked about those kinds of sensory impairments. So if there's a visual impairment or if there's a hearing impairment, we wanna get that treated. We want to know that and be on top of that immediately. So many kids who don't consistently learn to respond to people here as babies and toddlers have developmental delays in many other areas. So you're looking at delays and even when they start to uh, begin school, you know, they're gonna have difficulty making friends and following directions and have some academic problems. And we already talked about what a red flag uh, this is for autism. So it's a super, super important skill for us to um, target. So again, why am I spending all this time to kind of get you prepped without really, really telling you what to do yet? Is because I want you to understand how foundational this skill is for communicating. Communicating always involves at least two people. So when we can't get that reciprocity or that back and forth interaction going, we know there's gonna be a problem learning to understand words because he's not going to engage with other people well enough to learn how to follow directions. And then we also know that he's probably going to have lots of difficulty learning how to talk because the reason we talk is to interact with other people and to get our needs met and to share that again I've already said warmth but that loving attachment to another people other people another person so that's why that's why we do that and so that's why I've taken a really long time to get you here so that we can begin to talk about what are these strategies? And again, I want to be sure that you know this is very, very, very treatable. It's very addressable. Whatever a ball you want to use, improvable. <laughs> when we get the right strategies in place, and I've already said it, this is my third time now, this will make a bigger difference in your success with a child as a therapist than any other strategy you can put in place. So let's talk about, again, are approaching this let's talk about what are the specific things we can do now as a therapist they don't forget now these are things that you should be doing to help a child interact better with you and then you should really be talking about these things with mom and dad so that they understand this is what works this is what we're focusing on right now and go ahead and give them the the script that I just talked to you about go ahead and say look 
before we can help him, you know, your child has a big language problem. You already know that. That's why you want services. You know that he's not talking. You also have told me some things that indicate that he's not really understanding very much language. And the reason why both of those things are happening is because he is not consistently responding to other people. So that's why we need to work on this. So again, you preface your treatment plan with that very objective, comprehensive statement with the reason your kid's not talking yet is because he's not interacting well enough to learn what words mean and then to begin to use those words. And so when you tie that together, that helps parents understand why you want them to do these next things. And again, they may think this is simplistic. They may not agree with you that this is the real problem, but you just keep reassuring them, yeah, and when we do this, you're going to see a difference. In a few weeks or a few months, you're going to be saying to me, whoa, you were right. This is better. And a lot of times parents will say to me, I didn't know how little he responded to me until we started doing all these things i didn't realize how much time he spent alone until we started doing all these things and so again as a therapist just know that know that you're going to have to walk a parent through this process and that they're going to have to really really understand it even if but don't get belligerent about it don't argue with them about their own child because they will always know their own kid a lot better than you but you know communication development and you know this is how we need to start and you know this strategy works better than anything else you could try at the beginning so really really convince yourself of that and then help parents really begin to understand it so what's our first strategy here and i haven't mentioned this yet this is from uh, my treatment manual let's talk about talking ways to strengthen the 11 skills all toddlers master before words emerge and so we're just taking this straight from the book and so if you like these ideas and you want to get the written version of that so you can hang on to it and really own this material check that out at teach me to talk all right so the number one strategy is kids have to uh, uh, for adults a lot of times again before we can change a kid it's a lot easier to change ourselves <laughs> so we're going to teach parents how to do this and as a therapist again teach yourself how to do it you really can't teach something you don't know how to do and so as a coach think about it with a sports analogy now a basketball is so big in kentucky so i'll just use that as a coach you may not be the very best player, but you have to know how to do it. And most coaches have played the sport that they're teaching. They may not have been at the professional level, but there is a level of mastery there and a level of expertise that they depend on when they are coaching the sport that they are uh that they are employed in or coaching so or participating in even if it's like a dad coaching a kid's soccer team he's got to know soccer <laughs> he's got to have, have have at least watched or played soccer before he can really teach it right same thing with you so as a therapist you can't get so complacent and i'm doing the consultative model all i have to do is go in and make some recommendations for strategies and i hope that that little um imitation that I just did then I mean sometimes that's how flat we get when we are not really 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 focused on uh, sharpening our skills and just being the very best we can be and so uh, these are the things that we really need to be doing in ourselves and that we need to be teaching parents and again we change ourselves a lot easier and a lot faster than we change children so what's the number one thing we do we consistently respond to the child so in this technology addicted world 
we got a lot of inattention, uh, uh, poor attention or inattentiveness going on, don't we? So many people are just just attached to their cell phones. I mean, you can be having a conversation with somebody and it's going great and you hear a little ding and they are immediately, even if they're not pulling out that phone from their pocket, they want to. And you can tell how distracted they are. And so this happens a lot with parents at home. And, you know, I have fallen into this trap. If you have followed uh, my email list and uh, my website over the last couple of years, you'll know that I was really, really addicted to social media and a lot of screen time, a lot of TV stuff, and I've just given that all up because I realized that was really changing the way that I thought and that I interacted with people. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to this extreme. You probably don't. And after all, I own a website. I do want you watching this and I do want you listening to this and reading this. But at the same time, with technology addictions or with screen addictions or with just really preferences, you know, it's a problem when mom prefers Instagram over playing with her baby. It's a problem. I mean, We've got to just start saying that <laughs> so that people will understand how differently we're interacting with other people and how differently we're communicating and all of the things that overuse of screens, all the neg negative things that we know as therapists happen with children. Guess what? That's happening with adults too, with adults who can't be separated from their phones or who spend, even with work, who spend, you know, eight or 10 hours a day in front of a screen and then then they try to do two or three hours for pleasure, you know, with their own little sports boards or, again, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, whatever they're doing. That's a lot of screen time, and that's a lot of time that we're not interacting with other people. And so we have to talk about that with parents, and we have to talk about a pattern of non-responsiveness. If your child is really, really screaming before you notice it, that's a problem. You've got to really, really learn to consistently respond to him. And so that doesn't mean that you're going to drop everything at the tiniest little whimper. I'm not saying that, but I am saying there is just a big pattern of distractibility going on right now, not only in our country, but around the world. And so we have to really, really be able to pull back from technology and really, really consistently respond to other people who are in the real world right in front of us. And so you'll have to have some conversations with parents about that. And listen, anytime that we point out something that's uh, really, really a problem. I mean, sometimes we hit a nerve, and so a parent will have a big reaction. So think about how to soften that if you need to, or or think about how you need to talk about it that fits your approach or a particular family's needs. But it's something we have to really talk about, really being consistently responsive to a child. Because how can we train or help uh, treat a consistently distracted child respond to us if we don't respond to him. So be sure you're doing that. As therapists, we kind of have a different problem. Sometimes we are so driven by data that we are, are hearing or watching what a child is doing and then we immediately try to track it and then we miss something wonderful that happened after that. And how do I know this? It's because I video a lot of therapy and especially um, in the past. I mean, I would video every minute that I saw every child that I saw and I, I know I know this because I've done it I would be so interested in keeping my data or an even better thing a more legitimate thing I would be so engrossed in a conversation with mom about what she needed to do with the child or how to handle something that I would miss the next wonderful thing that happened so don't let that happen to you as a therapist really really keep your eyes focused on the child and you're hearing 
focused on the child so that you can sit consistently respond and teach mom even as you're talking with her and working with her and her child does something teach her how to shift her attention because again some parents aren't as great at that and they don't really understand that this the speech language problem that they have is rooted in interaction and so we've got to get that interaction better and we can't teach him to respond to me until I respond to him. So help parents make that distinction. All right, the next one is a big one for parents, and it's don't let a toddler check out or be alone for long periods of time. And why is that? Because we're working on this interaction piece. We're working on engagement. We're working on social reciprocity. And uh, you can't get that when you're by yourself. So if I'm sitting here just focused on my book, and I don't notice when someone else comes in, or I don't notice, you know, Johnny calling me from the back room, Laura, Laura, that's a big problem. And so again, we've developed some terrible habits, and then sometimes this is really too an internal thing. And again, the a core deficit of autism is, uh, and I read this study once that I thought that was so great. It said, it, it said the human voice may not spark interest in a kid with autism. Wow. <laughs> It's so true. And so you have to really, really think about that. And the best way that we can teach a kid, again, to respond to us is to, for him to be with us. So you can't have a kid isolated in a bedroom. And I know sometimes, oh, my goodness, I get this email, if not once a week, once every couple of weeks, where a parent will say, I work at home and dad works at home and I, then the other parent works outside the home, but the parent who works at home is responsible for the child all day. And so they don't have to have daycare, which is not a bad thing. But the parent is so involved in what they are doing and getting legitimately getting their work done that they do tend to leave their child alone for, gosh, sometimes a couple of hours when they're not asleep, but they're just kind of wandering around doing their own thing. That is just the kiss of death for a kid with red flags for autism. It really, really is. And I'm being as, you know, please don't think that I'm exaggerating for effect here because it is true. If you have a child who has difficulty responding consistently to other people and you leave him alone, you are not doing him any good. So he needs to be with you the majority of the day. So what does this mean? So what I tell parents is, okay, mom, you're home with them a lot during the day. So that means if you are in the kitchen, he needs to be in the kitchen. She says, he runs away after a few minutes go get him use the baby gate to keep him in the kitchen with you not to keep him out of the kitchen close the doors help him learn how to stay with you if you're in the bedroom folding laundry uh, cleaning up doing whatever you do keep him with you help him take him from room to room with you and some for some parents this is a new parenting style they're not used to that. And again, they their child has liked to be alone and he's been good. So they've just left him alone for so long. They haven't even realized that this, again, is a core issue. So really, really talk to parents about that and get them to be in the same room with them for most of the day. That is a big, big recommendation that therapists should be making and they should make it on the first visit and we should say it over and over and over again so that a parent really gets it. Now I tell, I really talk to parents about that 20 to 25 hour a week of intervention and for some parents hearing that really kind of you know snaps us back into place and makes us really pay attention to it with you know we my kid has to have 20 to 25 hours of therapy or intervention a week really is 20 to 25 hours of interaction a week. So if you are keeping him with you the majority of the day, if you are talking to him about what he's doing, about what you're doing, if you are helping him do things with you, if you are playing with him, if he is, again, 
with you, that's the key. So don't let a kid check out or be alone for long periods of time. Next recommendation, my goodness, I make this on every show, no matter what we're talking about, but it's positioning. So get eye-to-eye -eye and face-to-face -face with a child. And we've already talked about what an important indicator eye contact is and really, really looking at your face. And again, why is that a big deal? Because that's normal or typical human behavior. <laughs> and again, because so many kids uh, have preferred an iPad or a phone, Sometimes we've gotten away from this and parents don't always do a good job of playing those little games that we play with kids like peekaboo and patty cake and all those things are just ooing and cooing with their babies. You know, I've seen parents try to change a baby's diaper and read their phone at the same time or have a conversation with their older children at the same time. And some of that is necessary, but we're really, really missing out on this one-on-one -on -one interaction. And especially if a baby hasn't liked doing that especially if that's been hard for him, if that's been a challenge. And so if he's just constantly trying to get away and wiggle out. And so parents don't do a lot of that eye-to-eye -eye and face-to-face. -face. And some kids with autism, really, and adults with autism will tell you this, and it, gosh, it gives us such insight into our little friends who can't communicate yet. But they'll say, you know, eye contact and being that, that was just intense for me. That was too much for me. I really, I really couldn't do that. I still can't really do that with people. And so we've got to really help children. And again, in this, in this birth to three, birth to five, earliest developmental window, we can rewire that so that we don't have an adult really saying that because we give them so many experiences with that and so, much, so many quote-unquote rewards for doing that, which we're going to talk about. And so this positioning piece is super, super important. And a kid may not be able to tolerate looking at you dead on, you know, the right away, but you can start to really, really work toward that. And you, again, you can be as fun and as inviting. That's the next thing we're going to talk about with eye contact. Uh, not really forcing it, but inviting it. But you can do a lot of that with positioning. So if, you, if a kid really doesn't look at you, unless you're at that eye-to-eye, face-to-face level, put him on the couch and you sit on the floor or let him sit on a low table and you sit on the floor. Or I'm not really a high chair therapist. You know, I don't really belt kids in and see them. I mean, some kids need the security and the boundary and the physical the physical support to be able to do it, but for the most part, they don't for toddlers. But sometimes you do need to get them in a chair so that they can have that opportunity to really learn how to make eye contact. And again, sometimes you have to start with sitting, with helping a child feel so physically comfortable with you, so you have to hold them first. That body-on-body -body contact is so regulating for so many of our little busy friends and our friends that have lots and lots of sensory processing and sensory uh, regulatory differences. Uh, and then sometimes sitting next to them where you're not really in front of them, you're not face-to-face, -face, and if kids try to get away from you when you do that a lot, try to just sit them beside you and see if that doesn't make a difference with that. And then eventually you're going to work into that position where you are eye-to-eye -eye and face-to-face, -face. but some kids can't do it at the beginning, and so you have to really, really work toward that. Now, we've already talked about not forcing eye contact, and what do I mean by that? I mean by taking their little faces and making them look at you, <laughs> and you know you've done it. <laughs> we've all done it, right? I've done it. Parents do it. We all do it, but guys, that's not the, the best way to do it, to force that compliance. Invite it. Really, really make yourself as fun and as loving. Now, sometimes being so animated, which I have a tendency to be, sometimes you can really overwhelm a child with sensory processing differences. And so they just want to avoid you because you've, you've been too much. 
you've overwhelmed them. So with those kinds of kids, think warm, think loving, think, you know, I'm just going to do everything I can to make this child feel nurtured and appreciated. And again, getting that one-on-one piece really, really going. And so as a parent, you know, when you have been trying the things to do to work on eye contact, the best thing that you can do is make make yourself as fun and as easy to listen to as possible. The ultimatums, the pleading, all of that doesn't really work. You want to make yourself the very best play partner or the very best, uh, oh, I don't know, when you're meeting their needs, whatever you would call that, just the very best parent that you can be. And so exude warmth and acceptance and, again, really, really lavish that love so that a child wants to look at you and wants to be with you. All right, let me teach you something that I teach a lot of people, and my daughter's in graduate school right now to be a speech-language pathologist, and she said this the other day, and I, you know, I just love that she has learned so much of this stuff just by osmosis, kind of, or just hearing me talk or, you know, working with me, but this is what she said. She said, I was trying to get a child to look at me, so I put his hands on my face, and mom, that worked so great. That is such a wonderful strategy that sometimes a lot of us who are more seasoned clinicians do, but we don't always remember to talk to new therapists or to parents about this. But a toddler's eyes follow his hands. And so sometimes, again, you have to teach them how to do it so that you're not putting their hands on your face and they immediately try to rip your hair out. (laughs) But you do want it where they're watching you. And this helps a lot, again, even with eye contact and with getting that engagement piece going. Now, when you're too close and you're too animated, like we just talked about, it will overwhelm them. So be sure that, again, you are looking with warmth and with acceptance so that they can really, really... um, connect with you there. All right, another thing that I want you to do here is sound fun, and I already talked about this, but you want to be, sound more like a kid and less like an adult. So for a lot of us, it means talk less, use more play sounds, use more exclamatory words like uh-oh and wow and whee and oh boy and those kinds of things but lots of different lots of different sounds now if you're a therapist and you're thinking well I can't really say that because I want this child to learn have adult language models he's going to get it he's going to get it he's going to hear it the majority of the day but for a lot of the day we want really child directed or developmentally appropriate where he is just one little step above where he is so if a child is nonverbal he needs to hear lots of single words and two-word phrases. If he is at the single word level, he needs to hear two-word phrases and three-word phrases. So just that little step right above where he's currently functioning. And so with so many of our little guys in early intervention, they are nonverbal. So we have to talk to their talk to parents about using those those uh, pre-verbal things like animal sounds and like environmental sounds and like sound effects is what we should really be calling those things and exclamatory words to really hook a child's attention and again sound more like a kid and less like an adult the next strategy is is kind of a no-brainer but i want to say it because sometimes therapists really really miss this we have to do what a kid likes so if we are working with a child at home and mom says he really likes water play don't wear your best clothes to that visit. You need to play in the water. <laughs> if he loves, if he loves, oh gosh, cars and trucks, you need to play cars and trucks. Don't bring baby dolls or don't insist that he do something, especially in the beginning. 
for uh, really establishing your relationship with him and really teaching him how to respond to other people. Now, pick things that he likes, and then you need to do your best to look like you are enjoying it too. And again, this is to really, really reward his ability to let you participate with him. So you're going to want to join him in play. And so it goes a lot better if you can start with things that he likes. So that's something that we should be talking to parents about and really, really helping them decide and say, this is when you need to work on speech. If he loves snacks, if he's addicted to goldfish and you're going to give him a bowl of 30 goldfish, make that interactive so that he's got a play with you and interact with you to get that next goldfish or if he loves taking a bath or if he loves sliding that's where you start that's what you do because all of us avoid what we don't like so if and we do what we like and so if you just kind of keep that in mind and think i'm going to start with a child's preferences first to really really get that interaction going I say this, it's kind of, I feel like it might be a little bit out of place in this uh, particular course, but I say all the time to parents, you know, the after we've sort of talked through all this and now we're really kind of, you know, we've talked about all the things that parents need to do or adults need to do to change themselves and now we're ready to talk about more things that we do that we get the kid to do. Here's what I say. I say, you know, you've got to play with him. You've got to be with him. You can't just make it all about working on speech when you're changing a diaper and giving a bath and feeding him, you know, all the quote-unquote daily routines, you've got to really play. And for me, I feel like play is is a daily routine. And so I tell parents, listen, you're going to have to play and play and play and play and play and play and play. And when you're sick of all that, you are going to have to play some more. <laughs> this is also where um, with kids with social interaction problems, you know, we can't always even play with toys. We have to be the toy. We have to be what they want to do and be with more than anything else. And some parents will say, I don't get that. I don't know what to do. Give me some ideas. And so we can always do some things that we're going to talk about with movement or with our little fun little social games. But again, sometimes when we bring out a toy, when I say give the play, 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 play speech, and then a parent will say, you know, I tried all that, and he just, he's just he's so focused on the toy, he doesn't even look up at me. That's when you know, too, that you've got to back off and take the toys out of it and really, really just work on that one-on-one -on -one back and forth uh, interaction. But again, it has to be playful. It has to be fun. You have to be doing something that your child likes. So, and, and again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself with the activities, but things like throwing them up in the air, things like making sure that if you are... Um, preparing dinner that you stop and that you engage him and that you are talking to him and that you know you do have those little playful moments interspersed throughout the day <clears throat> and so it's really really important and I've already talked about you know experts recommend the 20 to 25 uh, hours a week of intervention but really it's the 20 to 25 hours a week of interaction but play should be a big big part of that so for parents who aren't playing for parents who aren't naturally doing those kinds of things, we're going to have to work on that as therapists and really teach them how to do it. We'll get to that in a minute, too. Sometimes parents do freak out when we give them that 20 to 25 hour a week uh, recommendation. It is a big commitment, but again, this is what it takes to help a child get to the level of social interaction where he's going to be able to learn how to understand and use words. All right, when we're working on teaching a child to respond, we have to limit distractions. So we have to limit things that are going to make them focus on other things. 
So that might mean that the, t the big screen TV is off <laughs> if he's a TV watcher or if he loves the spinny light toy. You may not be able to use that because he's almost obsessed with it. And so he's become so fixated on, on or maybe he he's fixated on trains. You may not be able to use those toys because you're not going to be able to get in there. So to me, I would th I talk to parents about that being, well, that's a distraction to him responding to other people. So we're going to have to put that away for a while. Or you need you can let him have that like when you're not going to interact with him, when you need to make an important phone call or when you need to take a shower and you don't need him you know, getting all the cleaning supplies out from under the cabinet or, you know, trying to get in the toilet, those kinds of things. Save it for them. But when you're really working on interacting with him, don't use the things that he's going to become so hyper-fixated on. You still want to do what he likes, but when it becomes he's hyper-focused on it, you don't want to do that. All right, avoid power struggles during this time. So if you are playing with a toy and you're trying to, again, prioritize social interaction, which should be your goal number one, uh, sometimes you do are going to have to really, really, um, as an adult, not get your own way. So if he wants to hold all 25 of the cars, you're probably going to have to let him hold all 25 of the cars <laughs> when you first start. And so don't do things that are going to really, really make him mad. And so if you have a kid who's addicted to an iPad, you're not going to want to start with the iPad with working with him because uh, you know what you're gonna, what's going to happen? You're going to start with it. It's not going to be successful because he's going to be so focused on it. Even if it's an app that you know is the very best language learning app you have ever seen. Even if you've got that, he's not going to include you. And at some point you're going to say, oh, we're not accomplishing anything there. And then what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to take the iPad away. He's going to have a fit, a meltdown for 10, 15, 20 minutes. The session may be over and you accomplish nothing. Why? Because you started out with something that you knew in your heart would be a power struggle. And so don't do that. Just avoid those things from the beginning. All right, be persistent in your attempts to join him when you're trying to play. We're going to talk about this a lot next week when we get to skill number three, which is turn-taking. But if he's playing with something you want to do everything you can to insert yourself in that play and a lot of times it is just getting yourself focused right there down on the floor with him eye to eye face to face if he's pushing cars you push a car too you might bang your car into his and say you know or whatever a little sound effect to get it going but if he hates that try a new sound try a different action maybe roll the car up your leg or roll the car up his leg or something like that so do everything you can to make sure you're included Here's a point that I want to talk about before we move on to specific strategies. We have to reward a child's attempts to respond to us. And so let me just say, some of you are naturally balking right now and saying, reward a child for responding? What do you mean by that? Anytime something is hard for us and we want to do it or we start to want to do it, we're going to do it more of the time when it's really, really a challenge, when there's something in it for us that we like after we've done it. So it's that that uh, <laughs> ABA way there <laughs> of getting, doing something to get something. We do something and we get something. You know, that we go to work because we want the paycheck, right? We uh, clean the house, sometimes not because of that internal joy that we get from cleaning the house. I mean, some of us are weird that way, but a lot of times we clean the house uh, because somebody's going to come in and say, this looks great. You know, you've gotten your words as your reward. And so think about this with a child. When he has been 
a difficult responder, when he's had a, a habitual non-responder, it's hard for him or he would normally be doing it, right? Because typically, if he were typically developing, he would do it. Or if this were easier for him, he would do it. So we've got to give him some kind of reward. Now, who gets to decide that reward? Is it you, the adult? Absolutely not. <laughs> the recipient decides the award, reward, not the giver. So for sometimes, sometimes when I say this, especially to like school-based therapists who work with older children, they'll think about something tangible like a sticker or a piece of candy and blah, blah, blah. And our colleagues who are ABA therapists really, really think about that. I'm not even getting there yet. For some kids, it might be that. You might have to go there. But for a lot of kids, it's just the physical closeness that they get to you. It's just a squeeze that they get from you. It's a high five. It's a yay. Uh, you know, lots of our little friends get so kind of addicted to us cheering for them in therapy that when they do something, they, they stop and wait for the applause. <laughs> or they'll start clapping and saying yay because they so want that from you and so think about what's meaningful for that child so that you can reward them with what they need so that would be rewarding them for eye contact rewarding them for smiling at you rewarding them for staying with you for more than two seconds right so anything like that that we want to do be sh and be sure that parents understand what counts as responding sometimes they don't think speech therapy is successful until a child says a word when it could be that there's again their child is starting out not even interacting with people and so we have to really really talk about those things those joint attention, more awareness of you, better tolerance for interaction. Sometimes it's not doing the negative behavior that we've seen. They're not avoiding you. They're not running away. They're not crying. They're not shutting down. They're not ignoring you. You know, anything that they would do that's not that, that's, that's a response. And so we should count it like that. All right, so we're down to just the last few minutes of the show. We've already talked about these strategies. Let's talk about some activities. So how can we, what are some things we can do now that we've talked how about how we interact? Let's talk about some things we can do. Movement activities are some of the very best ways to get social interaction going. So this might be if a child's jumping on the bed, you, he likes that, or a trampoline, you go hold his little hand so that you are part of that, and you look at him and talk to him and sing to him and do whatever you do while he's jumping because he's included you in that activity. is something that he likes, and you have made it interactive. Things like swinging in a blanket can be so fun for kids. And they, again, we have such an opportunity to teach them all kinds of other things like requesting. Uh, you can really teach signs and words with this. And again, following directions like, oh, you want to swing? Go get that blanket. Those things come after you've established that activity and that you've gotten that nice eye contact and you've gotten that warm response from a child and he wants to stay with you. He doesn't want to run away from you. So movement activities like that. It might be rocking a child back and forth in a laundry basket. It might be things that you, even that you play with toys, but you have a lot of movement naturally involved with those activities like balloons or like bubbles or even like a play, playground where you're playing with him and you're swinging him in a swing and you go around on the front instead of on the back so that he's looking at you when he swings toward you. Those kinds of things. Playing chase, any little game or bouncing him on your legs where you are providing him with a movement opportunity that's going to help regulate his little body and give you a perfect opportunity for uh, consistent responses there. Sensory experiences that we've already talked about 
So remember, like from last week's show, things we can see, things we can hear, things we can touch. So things like music, where you're singing to a child. A lot of times we'll talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and then nothing's working. So we break out in song because that's our last strategy. <laughs> we have nothing else. And the kid's with us. He's listening. He's right there. So think about using music, using singing. Uh, most children like music. Some of our little friends with auditory sensitivities don't like music. They'll cover their ears. They'll run away. But for the most part, we can use that with children. And even when kids are running away, it's not how you're singing. It's not your voice. It's, again, that they have that sensitivity to that. So we desensitize that over time. We do uh, some chanting, maybe. So instead of singing uh, something really melodic like twinkle, twinkle, little star, you'll chant it. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Kids like that, and it serves the same purpose. It's rhythmical, and again, it's very, very enticing. Hands down, though, the very best strategy for teaching children to respond to you is social games. And I've already mentioned it, patty cake, peekaboo, ring around the rosies, even little songs like Itsy Bitsy Spider and Wheels on the Bus. You're pairing music with it, and you're pairing a lot of times movement with it, like ring around the rosies with social games. And so that's when, again, kids are most likely to stay with you and consistently respond to you. And this is, too, where we really are the toy. And so I always, when I teach courses live, I always say to therapists, you should have 10 to 15 social games that, boom, you can do them at a moment's notice. You don't have to look at your notes. You don't have to go grab a book. You don't have to sit there and rack your brain. You've got 10 to 15 go-to little games that you can play with any child in any family at any moment. Now, if you don't have that, I can help you. <laughs> I've got a whole book, and I meant to bring it with me, but it's Teach Me to Play With You. You can get it at my website, but it walks you through step-by-step step all these little games. There's also a lot of these in the book that I talked about at the very beginning. Uh, let's talk about talking where you take the game and you don't just play the game you teach a child how to play the game in really really uh, small sequential steps and the first thing we want to get is just a response like we talked about eye contact then we want to get more attention where he's really really staying with you and then we want to get participation where he's doing his part and again the part doesn't happen at the middle it's just like whatever the whatever the big thing is what so in patty cake it's what it's clapping his hands. In peekaboo, it's what? It's taking the blanket off his face. In hide and seek, it's what? It's him, the boo at the end, right? Jumping out when you find him. And so that's where it starts. It's not in doing the whole thing. With a song like uh, Wheels on the Bus, it may just be the rolling the hands. It's whatever is the big part of that. We get that first. Then we'll start to get another little part of the game. And then we get another little part of the game. But really the whole point here is to teach him how to respond so that he can learn how to participate. Now, we're going to talk about this more through this next little series of shows. And next week, we're going to do turn-taking, which really segues so nicely. But until a kid can turn-take, he's got to learn how to respond to you. So that's what we focused on today. I hope I've given you some great ideas for that. And uh, again, be sure to check out my website, Teach Me to Talk, so that you can get even more ideas for helping a child learn how to respond. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and you you have just participated in show number or course number 387 from uh, teachmetotalk.com.